Well, it's great to worship together, and we want to continue our worship with a real blessing today. We have with us David Brickner, who is the executive director of Jews for Jesus, a ministry that's been around many years, and their goal, their vision is to reach Jews with the gospel of Jesus Christ, to help them get to know Jesus as their Messiah. David has been the executive director since 1996, but he's been with them for 28 years, I believe, and uh, so we're excited to have him with us. He will be sharing with us uh, the Passover Seder and helping us understand the imagery of it and how Jesus really is revealed in this gospel of Jesus Christ. So, David, we're thrilled to have you come share with us. Let's give him a warm welcome, shall we? Thank you. Thank you very much. Shalom. It is great to be back here with you. I think it was about eight years ago that I was with you on a Sunday morning, so thank you for having me back. I'm not always as warmly welcomed as I travel on behalf of Jews for Jesus. You know, people hear that name and the controversy begins. How can this be? Jews for Jesus? That's a contradiction in terms. That's like saying vegetarians for meat. Not too long ago, a Jewish guy came up to me. He said, how can you be a Jew for Jesus? I said to him, well, Jesus was Jewish, right? He thought of me. He said, yeah, Jesus was Jewish, but then he converted and became a Catholic. (laughs) So much misunderstanding. But of course, not only was Jesus himself Jewish, but the disciples, his first followers, Peter, James, John. You know, we have a little plaque on the cornerstone of our headquarters in San Francisco. It says, Jews for Jesus, established 32 AD, give or take a year. All the writers of the New Testament, with the possible exception of Luke, were Jewish. And we know that Luke was a doctor, so who knows? (laughs) Back in the beginning, believing in Jesus was a very Jewish thing to do. As a matter of fact, when the first Gentile wanted to believe in him, they evaded, we have problems. Never before had a Gentile wanted to believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob without first becoming a proselyte or a convert to Judaism. And so, in the book of Acts, when Cornelius wanted to believe in our Jewish Messiah, well, that was something completely different. And you might remember, God had to give the Apostle Peter three different visions before he finally got up on a chutzpah, enough nerve to go to the house of Cornelius. And there he went, and he proclaimed the gospel, and the whole family responded, which was wonderful, but then... Peter had a big problem on his hands. He had to go back to his fellow apostles in Jerusalem and explain to them what he had done. And there was such an uproar, we actually had to hold the first church council. And you can read about that in Acts 15. And that first church council was held to resolve this burning question. What do we do with the Gentiles for Jesus? Well... See how things change? Uh, Thankfully, God told us it was okay. And so we got so excited about this idea of Gentiles for Jesus that we sent out our best missionaries. Paul, Silas, Barnabas. They did a pretty terrific job, don't you think? After a while, there were a lot more Gentiles for Jesus than Jews for Jesus. (laughs) But that was okay. We found out it was part of God's plan right from the beginning to make us one in the Messiah. So we're one in Him today. Amen? You know, but because of that, now you share with me in a wonderfully rich heritage. 
the heritage of the people of Israel and all that God did to reveal Himself through the Old Testament, through the fathers, through the prophets, through the festivals of Israel. This now becomes part of your heritage in the Messiah. And we're going to look at one aspect of that this morning in the story of Passover, which of course is how God delivered Israel from bondage and slavery in Egypt thousands of years ago. But as we look more closely at Christ in the Passover, you're going to see how God, in bringing Israel out of slavery in Egypt, wove into the very fabric of that story a picture of a redemption, a festival of redemption, a far greater redemption than just what happened in Egypt, a redemption of all the world from the Egypt of sin through our Passover Lamb, who is Jesus the Messiah. So if you have a Bible with you, I want to invite you to turn with me to that first Passover story, which is found in Exodus chapter 12, and we'll be reading verses 5 through 8 and 11 through 15 of Exodus 12. Now, remember at this time Israel was in bondage, we were enslaved in Egypt. God promised He was going to redeem us, and so He raised up Moses and sent him to Pharaoh to tell him, Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh wasn't willing to listen. And so God had to persuade Pharaoh. And God can be very persuasive when He wants to. And God persuaded Pharaoh to listen, remember, by sending a series of plagues upon the land of Egypt. And there were ten plagues in all. Now, the Jewish people were living in a section of Egypt called Goshen. And we read in the Bible that they were automatically by that exempt from the first nine of those ten plagues. So, for example, the Bible tells us when when darkness fell across the land of Egypt as a plague from God, there was light in Goshen where the Israelites were living. Or when God smote the cattle of the Egyptian with plague, the cattle of the Israelites were spared. But this was not the case for the tenth plague, the worst plague, the death of the firstborn. In order that that plague should not fall upon the children of Israel, God commanded them to take a lamb for each family. So that's where we'll pick up the story now, Exodus 12 and verse 5. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the fourteenth day of the month when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Now verse 11. This is how you are to eat it. With your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. For seven days you are to eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, remove the yeast from your houses. For whoever eats anything with yeast in it from the first day through the seventh must be cut off from Israel. So that's the historical institution of Passover. 
We know then that the first Passover was celebrated on the night of the tenth plague way back in the land of Egypt. But as God commanded in the passage we just read, Israel was to continue to celebrate, commemorate Passover as a lasting ordinance. And so throughout our history, as we observe the Passover, there were various symbols and traditions added to the observance to remind us of that first Passover back in the land of Egypt. So that by the time Jesus and the disciples were celebrating this Passover, most of the items that you see on the table this morning were already incorporated into that observance. And of course, the most significant Passover that Jesus and the disciples celebrated was in the upper room in Jerusalem. The Last Supper was a Passover. So then how much more significant does this festival come to be for us who are Christians in view of all that Jesus said and did on that night He was betrayed? And we're still celebrating Passover every year in Jewish homes. Now this year, Passover is a month after Easter. And that's simply because of the difference between the Roman calendar and the Jewish calendar. One is a solar and the other is a lunar calendar. And so you'll find Passover at the end of April this year. There's a tremendous amount of of preparation that goes into this celebration. You might remember that Jesus even sent Peter and John ahead of him into the city of Jerusalem in the Gospel saying, Go, prepare the Passover that we may eat. And this preparation involves many different things, but most specifically doing what God commanded the children of Israel to do back in the land of Egypt. As we read in verse 15 of Exodus 12, we were to cleanse our houses of all leaven. Anything with yeast in it. So all your Wonder Bread and all your Hostess Twinkies have to go right out of the house. But because Passover happens every springtime, at the springtime, it's a time for a general house cleaning. And in the Orthodox Jewish home, mom will begin weeks in advance cleaning. Floor to ceiling, everything's clean. There's even a whole different set of dishes put out for use at the Passover. But we have a problem. And the problem is that although it is the mother who does the cleaning of the house, the rabbis tell us only the man can certify that the house has been properly cleaned. (laughs) You can see what kind of a problem we have. (laughs) Oh, You know, the rabbis knew the men would be hopeless to get the job done right by themselves. They wanted to ensure peace and harmony in the home at Passover, so they got together and they thought about this problem and they came up with a solution which in Hebrew is called bedikat chametz, or the searching out of the leaven. Here's how it works. The night before Passover, house has already been cleaned. Mom takes a little bit of yeast or leaven that's left over, maybe crumbs from the toast that they had for breakfast that morning. Well, she takes that and she hides it somewhere in the house. So the man coming home in that evening will take in his hand strange cleaning utensils a feather, a wooden spoon, and a napkin. And he'll go on a GI inspection to search out the leaven, looking high and low for those crumbs. Now, if his wife has been good enough to him, she's hit it in the same place she hit it last year (laughs) and the year before that, (laughs) so that when he finally finds those crumbs, he takes the feather and with a steady hand, he scrapes them into the spoon, he wraps the whole thing up in the napkin, And what they still do to this very day in Israel is then march off to the local synagogue and there's a bonfire burning in the courtyard of the synagogue. The man takes the package, tosses it into the bonfire, recites a prayer, and so declares the house properly cleaned. An ingenious way for the men to get out of the house cleaning, don't you think? (laughs) 
But you know something? The Apostle Paul makes a specific and direct analogy to this custom of Bedikat Chametz in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and beginning with verse 6. Paul says, Your glorying is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Purge out therefore the old leaven, so that you may be a new lump as you are unleavened. For even Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And so we see from that passage that leaven is not just something with yeast in it. Leaven is a symbol for sin. And Paul points out that just as leaven is a symbol for sin, so then the unleavened bread, this matzah that we eat at the Passover, is a symbol of purity and of righteousness before God. Now ladies, I know you must be thinking, it is certainly not fair that you have to do all the hard work of cleaning house and the man gets the ceremonial glory of Bedikat Chemet searching out and declaring it clean. Well, ladies, you have your own very bit of ceremonial glory, uh, which actually is very significant to the beginning of the Passover. The mother will, at this point, take the Haggadah. This is the Haggadah. Haggadah is a Hebrew word. It means the story or the telling. And within this beautifully bound and beautifully illustrated book, you have all of the story, the telling, the ceremony, and the prayers associated with Passover. So in order to begin the actual celebration, mom takes the Haggadah and she reads a special prayer from it to light the candles, what's called a bruchat haner. And actually, while I can't give you all a Haggadah, each of you have received a brochure that looks like this. I'm going to ask you to take it out because some of the blessings and prayers and information inside will help us to celebrate together. And the mother lights these candles. And there is a traditional blessing over the candles, which I'm going to say in Hebrew, and then I'm going to ask all the ladies here this morning to help me say it in English. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Kedeshanu B'Mitzvotzav V'Tzivanu Lahadlik Ner Shel Pesach Together, ladies. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctifies us by his commandments and commands us to kindle the festival lights. Now, I think it's appropriate that it is the woman rather than the man who lights the candles and so brings light to the festival table. Because in the same way, it was not through a man, but rather through a woman in the will of God that the light of the world came into the world. As the prophet Isaiah declared, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of my people Israel. And so I think it's appropriate for all of us to say the messianic blessing over the candles together. Let's say it. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctifies us through Yeshua, the Messiah, the light of the world. Amen. Now, Passover is a time that is celebrated in the home rather than the synagogue. Around the family, dinner table, we recline on pillows, as you can see, and this is in direct reference to Exodus 12. 
You'll remember that at that first Passover back in the land of Egypt, we had to have our cloak tucked into our belt, our staves in our hands, our sandals on our feet, ready to take off at a moment's notice. That's how the first Passover was eaten, standing up. And that's a symbol. A symbol is that in ancient Near Eastern culture, only free people could recline at meals. Slaves had to stand during the meal. Once we were slaves... But now we've been set free. And so the pillows become a symbol of that freedom as we recline. And of course, Jesus reclined on pillows in the upper room when he celebrated the Passover. And the father has a, a special role to play in the home, just as the mother does. The father puts on this special ceremonial garment, which is called the kittle. It's the same garment that was worn by the priests in the temple. You thought I was dressing up like Emeril Lagasse, right? Bam! <laughs> well, he also puts on this white cap, which is called a mitre, which is symbolic of a crown in the ancient Near East. The father leading his family in worship is priest of his home and king of his castle. And it's not just a time for mothers and fathers. Passover is a time for the children to get involved. And the kids are invited to participate in a number of different ways, most significantly through the Manish Tanah, or the four questions which are chanted usually by the youngest child, and the answer to those questions serve as the outline, if you will, of the explanation of the Passover. Here's what the first question sounds like. Why is this night different from all other nights? On all other nights we eat leavened or unleavened bread. Why on this night do we eat only unleavened bread? And after chanting all four questions, the father then answers the child and in so doing explains the meaning of the Passover. In fact, there's a tradition, a story about four different sons. There's four questions, four sons, and as you can see, there's four cups in the Passover. Now actually, there's really only one cup per person at the table. We all have a place setting and a cup, but we drink from that cup four different times during the Passover. And each time we drink from the cup, there's a different name and symbolism given to it. And so the first cup, the first time we drink, it's called Kiddush. Kiddush means sanctification. That's what this is, the cup of sanctification, because with it we sanctify all that is to follow in the rest of our Passover meal. And there's a traditional Hebrew prayer that we say over this cup, and certainly Jesus himself said that Hebrew prayer, and then our Lord said something which directly relates to that Hebrew prayer. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam borei pori hagafen. Amen. Say it with me in English, would you? Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth fruit from the vine. And then Jesus said, It is with great desire that I have desired to eat this Passover with you, but I tell you truly, I will not partake of the fruit from the vine again until I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. You see, Jesus spoke of a new, a fulfilled Passover in the kingdom yet to come. And with this cup, He sanctified all that was to follow in His Passover in which He gave us that Passover of fulfillment. Everything is now blessed and sanctified and everything has a particular order to it as well. Now, Seder is the Hebrew word for order. Passover is referred to as a Seder meal. And this is a Seder plate. And despite its appearance, it's not for deviled eggs. 
you notice the compartments on the Seder plate? Well, they correspond to the different food items that are displayed down through here. And a little bit of each of these food items is placed on the compartments of the Seder plate. And the first item that we have is in Hebrew called karpus, which means greens, in this case parsley. And the rabbis tell us that the greens represent life. And we will take some salt water, which represents the tears of life, and we dip the greens into the salt water. And so we are reminded that during our slavery in Egypt, our lives were immersed in tears. That slavery was a sorrowful experience for Israel. A life without redemption is a life immersed in tears. And yet we also remember now that God redeemed us with a mighty outstretched arm. He brought us out of bondage and slavery in Egypt. He brought us through that salty Red Sea on dry ground into freedom. And so by His mercy and grace, our lives have been drawn from tears. And we eat the greens to remind us that we partake of life now that has been redeemed from sorrow, from bondage through the mercy and grace of Almighty God. The second item on the Seder plate, horseradish. We call it Jewish Dristan. (laughs) Guaranteed to unclog the sinus passages in the back of your head. Now the horseradish, or maror as it's called in Hebrew, represents the bitterness of toil that our ancestors had during their slavery in Egypt. We read about it being commanded to be eaten during the first Passover back in Exodus 12. And what we do is we take some of the unleavened bread. This is the matzah which we eat. We say a blessing over it. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Hamotzi Lechem Min Haaretz. Say it with me in English, please. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And then we break off a piece and we dip it into the maror, the horseradish. Get, oh, about this much of it on there. And then... I'm not going to do it. <laughs> you know what happens when you eat this much stuff, this much horseradish? You begin to cry. Very little choice in the matter. But you see, those tears, they become the graphic picture, experience, if you will, reminder of the tears our forefathers shed during their slavery in Egypt. Now, remember when Jesus celebrated Passover with his disciples? He had said to them, one of you is going to betray me. The disciples, they got so upset. They said, Lord, is it I? Lord, is it I? Jesus said, He who dips in the sop with me this night will betray me. Well, every one of the disciples dipped in the maror, the sop, with Jesus. And, of course, in their own way, every one of them also betrayed Him. They all left Him, didn't they? And yet, we find later on in that story of the upper room, Jesus himself taking the bread, dipping it in the sop, handing it to Judas Iscariot. He said to him, what you must do, go and do quickly. And the Bible tells us that when Judas took the bread with the sop, Satan entered into him and he went out into the night. Maror is bitterness and tears. The next item on the Seder plate is called Cha-ro-seth. Can you all say that? Cha-ro-seth. Not bad, but you've got to get that Cha in there, you know? Cha, that's right. Just don't look at your neighbor when you say it. 
Now, charoseth is a sweet mixture. It has chopped apples, it has nuts, honey, raisins, and cinnamon. It's absolutely delicious, but it represents the mortar that we use to make bricks for Pharaoh during our slavery back in the land of Egypt. It kind of looks like mortar. And so you might wonder and ask the rabbi, Rabbi, if charoseth represents mortar for bricks, which of course was bitterness and, and toil to our people, why is this stuff so sweet? Ah, the rabbi will say, because you see, even the bitterest of our toils grew sweet when we knew that our redemption drew near. And we take some of the unleavened bread, the matzah, and dip it into the charoseth. This time maybe we get a double portion of that stuff. But what we find is that as we eat this sweet mixture, that bitter taste that was left in our mouths from the horseradish just disappears in the sweetness of the Chorosit, which teaches us that even the bitterest things that we have to face in this world can be sweetened by the promise of God's redemption. This is Hazeret, which is the bitter root. A horseradish root, if you don't have one of those, you can use an onion. It's a symbol... And resting on the Seder plate, it reminds us that not only are our experiences in life often bitter, it's because the root of life itself is bitter. And that's true even though we don't like to talk about it today. It's not a politically correct notion that the root of life is bitter because we are all born with a bitter and sinful nature which is that enmity with God. In fact, this idea of original sin has been rejected by modern-day Judaism, which teaches, as do many of the religions of the world, that we're all born basically good, and we just have to make the right choices in life. But that's not what the Bible says. In sin did my mother conceive me, said King David. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And yet there is good news, because if anyone is in Christ, what? New creation. That's good news indeed. Another symbol, in fact, one of two that were not present when Jesus celebrated the Passover, this is Hagiga. As you can see, Hagiga is a brown egg that has been hard-boiled, but Hagiga is also the name that was given to the sacrifice made in the temple at Passover. So this brown egg represents that burnt sacrifice. Now, we peel the egg and, and we slice it. And before we eat the slice of egg, we dip it into the salt water, which represents tears because we are mourning the fact that this is a memorial to a sacrifice that is no longer, a sacrifice that was central to the worship of Israel and to the forgiveness of sin, but which could only occur in the temple, present at the time of Jesus, but not long after. Titus and his Roman legions, in fulfillment of the prophecy that Jesus himself gave, marched in 70 A.D. into that city and destroyed the temple. And from that day until this very present, there has been no sacrifice in Judaism. And because of that, we mourn the absence at Passover. In fact, because of that, the rabbis tell us we can't even eat lamb as, as the main course of Passover. Like it was in the first... We have no lamb. We have some other meat as a main course. And this last item, the only other item not present when Jesus celebrated because the temple was still standing. This Zeroah, the shank bone of the lamb, reminds us of those lambs that were so central to that first Passover back in the land of Egypt, but which now can no longer be 
because of the temple's absence. God commanded in Exodus 12, verse 5, that we take a yearling male lamb without spot, without blemish, without any broken bone, we were to take that lamb and to sacrifice it. And this reminds me of another perfect Paschal lamb who contrary to Roman custom did not have his legs broken when he hung on the cross. And so did Jesus fulfill Messianic prophecy. Now we come to the second cup which is called the cup of plagues. We don't drink from this cup right away but rather we dip our finger in the cup and drop a drop on the plate in front of us. One drop for each of the plagues God visited on the land of Egypt. Because you see a full cup is a symbol of fullness of joy. And we don't want to take joy even in the suffering of our enemies and so we symbolically lessen our joy as we remember those terrible plagues. The blood, hail, locusts, boils, cattle disease, darkness, slaying of the firstborn. Nine times Pharaoh hardened his heart. Each time God sent a plague on the land of Egypt. But the tenth plague was the worst of all. It was the death of the firstborn. And God commanded the children of Israel to take the blood of that sacrificed lamb, to put it in a basin, to go outside of their homes and apply it to the doorposts of their houses, putting it on the top lintel and the two side posts. The blood of the lamb on the top lintel and the two side posts. And it's been remarked that this indeed makes the sign of a cross with the blood of the Lamb on that doorpost. That night death flew through the land of Egypt. And there was weeping and there was wailing as never before till Pharaoh cried out, Let them go or I'll die. But everywhere that the blood of the Lamb was on the top lintel and the two side posts, death passed over that house. And so redemption came that night to the children of Israel in the land of Egypt. Now because I believe in Jesus as my Messiah, and because I have by faith applied the blood of His sacrifice to the doorpost of my heart, When death comes to visit me, death is going to pass over me also because I have eternal life. Praise God for that. Now this is called a matzah tosh. A matzah tosh. You already know that matzah is the unleavened bread that we eat at the Passover and tosh just means bag. That's what this is. It's a bag for unleavened bread. And in fact, there are three pieces of unleavened bread inside the matzah tosh and each piece of bread is in its own section or compartment. Now, the rabbis tell us that the matzah tosh represents a unity. You see, there are three pieces of bread in one bag. Three in one. And yet, and yet, there's a great deal of disagreement among the rabbis as to which unity it is this matzatash represents. Writing in the Haggadah, one rabbi says, well, you know, the matzatash must represent the unity of the patriarchs. That's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Another rabbi says, no, no, the matzatash represents the unity of worship in Israel as represented by the priests, the Levites, and the people of Israel. And so on go several more explanations. Well, I believe the matzatash represents a unity also. But I believe that the matzatash represents the unity of our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And here's why. During a particular time of the Passover, we will reach into the second or middle compartment of the matzatash. Now, you can ask the rabbi, Rabbi, why do we take the second piece and leave the first and third pieces alone? And the answer is, we don't know. It's tradition. 
We take out that second middle piece and it's called the bread of affliction. We stand up, the head of the house stands and takes it out to show to everybody. Now there are three things that I want to show to you about this bread. First of all, this is a whole loaf of bread and yet it's flat like a cracker and that's because there's no yeast. It's unleavened. We have already talked about that. But there's such a concern about the unleavened bread that there be no rising in it that we bake this bread in a certain way. We make it very quickly... And then we use a device to puncture the bread, to put holes in it. You can see the flame of the candle. Some of you perhaps threw the bread. That's because it's pierced by that device. And then we bake it on a rack. Very quickly, these brown stripes are baked onto the bread. All matzah is unleavened, striped, and pierced. Are you with me? We take the second piece from the middle compartment of the matzah hold it up, and then break it in half. We take this broken piece and we wrap it in a linen cloth or in a linen bag, which is called the afikoman. Afikoman means it comes later. That's exactly what happens with this bread. We carry it outside of the room of celebration to be hid for a time. Buried, if you will. And this is such an important part of the Passover. The entire celebration cannot be completed without that second piece. And we'll get back to that in just a minute. But let me ask you, how many of you have been to a Passover before? Okay, a number of you. Most of you haven't. Well, I understood today for the first time that you may be having a Passover Seder right here at the church in Easter week. And that would be wonderful. If you're going to go, let me encourage you to do it. But let me warn you, eat lightly that day or not at all because you're really in for a great meal. I want to assure you, Passover is much more than parsley and horseradish. We eat and we eat and we eat. Unfortunately, that's the part I forgot to bring with me this morning. And in lieu of that sumptuous feast, I'm going to lead you through a different ceremony, not Passover, but a Jews for Jesus ceremony. Nonetheless, if you'll take out these brochures once again and open them up all the way, you'll notice the fourth panel is separated from the others by a perforation. And the ceremony begins by folding along that perforation. And uh, you fold it a few times. The name of this ancient ceremony is the tearing of the brochure together at the count of three. And just to show you how much Jewish culture you've absorbed, I'm counting the three in Hebrew. Amazingly, you'll know when to rip, okay? Here comes the count. Echad, shtaim, shalosh. Unless you're very creative, you should just have two pieces, all right? Please hold on to the larger section, take it home with you, use it to recall our time together. Uh, The smaller section you'll look at right now, there's a place for your name and address and boxes to check in the front and back. If you'd begin filling this out, I won't think it rude if you write now while I speak because in just a few minutes the ushers are going to come forward to receive a love offering for the ministry of Jews for Jesus. And if you take and place this brochure in the offering plate, Having filled it out, we'd love to send you our free monthly newsletter from Jews for Jesus. Now, some of you already get that newsletter, no doubt. Check the box that says, I already received your newsletter. But if you don't yet get it, we want to send it to you because it will tell you more about the Jewish roots of your Christian faith in a way that I think will really enrich your understanding of God's Word. And you've already begun to see how that can happen with Christ and the Passover here today. Secondly, We want to tell you more about how you can have an effective witness to Jewish people that God will bring into your life. And you can do it, and we want to help you. 
Thirdly, the newsletter will tell you more about what God is doing in the ministry of Jews for Jesus all around the world so you can pray for us. That's the most important thing is that you pray for our ministry. There's so much going on. We are very excited to see the greatest openness among Jewish people today, especially in the land of Israel. The fastest growing Jewish population is there and our ministry now has over a dozen full-time Israeli-born staff and we are about ready to launch our most far-reaching evangelistic program there called Behold Your God Israel, which will have us reaching out over the next six years to every major region throughout Israel. Now, I'm reminded of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, you'll not finish going through the cities of Israel before the coming of the Son of Man. Well, that's a very hopeful thought to us in Juice for Jesus, but we're going to sure give it our, our try, our best effort, and we want you to pray for us. In fact, if you'd like to be a part of the intercessors team, on the back of the card, there's a little line there that says, just write down Israel, because once these campaigns begin later this year, we anticipate a lot of opposition. And the only thing that I know of that overcomes that kind of opposition are the prayers of God's people. We really need you to be praying for us. And so we'd love to keep you informed about that. Also, at the close of the service, let me encourage you to go back to the literature table back in the back of the sanctuary. David and Shirley, who many of you know, who are co-laborers with Jews for Jesus here in the Boise area, will be there to help you with the materials. We have lots of free literature and some not-so-free material. We have a lot of stuff, Jewish gospel music by the Liberated Wailing Wall, if you've never heard, kind of a cross between Israeli folk and Fiddler on the Roof. And that's uh, good stuff. And if you'd like to know more about what we've been talking about here today, first of all, our founder, Moish Rosen, who's also been here, he wrote the definitive book on this subject, Christ and the Passover. And then if you're interested in knowing more about how to celebrate Passover in your own home, we've put together this Messianic Family Haggadah, which is a how-to manual. And uh, if you'd like to take me home with you today, you can do that in the form of a DVD, Christ and the Passover. So stop, see David and Shirley afterwards and they'll help you with that. And of course, if you'd like to be involved in Jews for Jesus through your support financially and the offering that we're about ready to receive, then you can give either by cash or by check, but put the amount of your gift in the blank on the front of this uh, brochure so that we can receipt you and thank you. And, and let me say that you don't have to give in order to be involved in and be a part of the ministry of Jews for Jesus through your prayers. We want to send you the newsletter so you can participate with us in this great adventure of reaching out with the gospel to the people that God first brought it to. So I'm going to pray as the ushers come forward and then we'll continue. Lord, thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for the truth of your word and the wonderful way that you've painted uh, the pictures of redemption on the pages of Scripture and through this Passover and on our hearts through the Lamb of God. And we just pray, Lord, that you take these gifts, these offerings, and use them to glorify your name and to make your name known among people around the world. And we commit this to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a lot of festivity and singing that goes along at Passover, and uh, we have a song, several songs in your brochure. One I'd like to teach you right now called Dayenu. Can you say that word with me? Dayenu. Now, Dayenu means it would have been enough. And the idea behind the song is if God had just brought us out of the land of Egypt, Dayenu, it would have been enough. He did so much more. He gave us manna from in the wilderness, water from the rock, the law at Mount Sinai. And for those of us who know him, he gave us the Messiah. So I'm going to sing the chorus first. As soon as you can, pick up the chorus, sing it with me, clap your hands as we, as we worship our God who does exceeding abundantly above all we could ask or think. 
Die, die, anu, die, die, anu, die, die, anu, die, anu, die, anu, die, anu, die, die, anu, die, die, anu, die, die, anu, die, anu, die, anu, Elu hotsi hotsi anu hotsi anu mi mitzrayim hotsi anu mi mitzrayim die anu die die anu die die anu. Die, die, anu, die, anu, die, anu, die, anu, die, die, anu, die, die, anu, die, die, anu, die, anu, die, anu, Elu shalach, shalach, lanu, shalach, lanu, het mashiach, shalach, lanu, het mashiach, die, anu, die, die, anu, die, die, anu, die, die, anu, die, anu, die, anu, die, anu, die, die, anu, Die, die, anu, die, die, anu, die, anu, die, anu. Hey! Very good. All right. Well, we've come through the meal of Passover now. I hope you've all had enough to eat. Because this last part of the Seder meal is the most important for we as Christians to understand. Towards the end of the meal, the head of the house will say to all the children, go search for the afikomen. That's that second piece that was broken and wrapped in a linen cloth and hid for a time. I'm wondering if there's a child here that thinks they know where that second piece is hidden. Could you come up and find it for us? Yeah, you. Normally they didn't get a chance to see where it was hidden. So they go searching diligently for it. And the child who finds it receives a reward. Oh yeah, yeah, you've got to take the reward. All right. (laughs) See kids, you should always pay attention in church. (laughs) Having rewarded the child, the father then stands and continues this ancient ceremony of the matzatash and the afikomen by unwrapping this bread from the linen cloth. He takes it out, shows it once again to those seated around the table, and then he begins to break off pieces for everyone seated at the table. Everyone now receives a piece of this bread. Now, does this remind you of anything? You see, brothers and sisters, if if the matzotash represents the unity of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, why is that middle portion broken, buried, and brought back? If the matzotash represents the unity of worship, the priests, the Levites, and the people of Israel, why is that middle portion broken, buried, and brought back? But if the matzotash represents the unity of our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then we know why. It's because Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, was broken in death, wrapped in a linen cloth, buried in the tomb, and then brought back, resurrected by the power of God, conquering sin and death, so that it is no wonder that Jesus took this bread and broke it and gave to His disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is My body. This unleavened, striped, pierced bread is My body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. By His stripes you are healed, the prophet predicted. What a picture portrayed in the Passover of the passion of the Lamb of God. And then He took the cup. Well, now you know we take the cup four times during the Passover, don't we? Jesus did in the upper room. So which time was this? Well, the Bible tells us he took the cup after they had supped, after the meal 
of the Passover. So the first two cups come before the meal, and the cup that comes directly after the meal is the third cup. And the third cup is the cup of redemption. Looking back to the redemption God brought our forefathers from Egypt and looking forward to that redemption in Moshiach Kumen, the cup, the third cup, the wine was to be red to remind us of the blood of the Passover lamb. And Jesus took the cup of redemption after supper, raised it up and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. New covenant. Habrit hachadashah. Those Hebrew words would have brought back to Jesus the prophecy of Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make Habrit HaChadashah, a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they break, although I was a husband to them, saith the Lord. See, that was the problem with that first covenant. It became a broken covenant. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their inward parts and on their hearts will I write it. First covenant was written where? On tablets of stone. New covenant was to be written on the tablet of our hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their sin and remember their iniquity no more. This was the ultimate condition upon which the new covenant rested. For no longer would sin be atoned for through daily offerings of animals in the temple, but once and for all. And now Jesus there at this climax of the Passover redemption story in the upper room takes the bread, takes the cup, and says, that which you've been waiting for, that which has been promised, that new covenant has now come in my blood. Imagine how the disciples must have felt after having celebrated this Passover year after year after year and then one day in that upper room in Jerusalem seeing its very fulfillment. To imagine that God in bringing Israel out of bondage in Egypt wove into the very fabric of that story this picture of the greatest redemption of all and of that redemption you and I partake if we know Christ is our Savior. If we have by faith applied the blood of His sacrifice to the doorpost of our hearts. Jesus is our Passover Lamb. Hallelujah. We have been redeemed by the precious blood of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And you know the Bible says let the redeemed of the Lord say so. That's exactly and really the only fitting response of the redeemed. To say so. To give thanks and praise to God. We have nothing else to offer Him but our lives and our words of praise and worship. And that's exactly how Passover concludes. A great festival of praise. We say so. We sing hymns. Remember the Gospels record Jesus and the disciples sang a hymn and then they went out to the Mount of Olives and they were singing most likely from the Jewish National Hymnal. You all have copies, right? Well, you do because the Psalms are Israel's hymnal and Psalms 113 through 118 are sung at this time. You have one of those Psalms right here in your brochure from Psalm 113. These songs are sung together with this last cup, the fourth cup, which is called Hallel. You all know the Hebrew word Hallelujah means praise the Lord. The cup of praise taken together with hymns of praise is the conclusion of the Passover. And all over the world, Jewish people this year will raise up this last cup and say, Lashana haba Berushalayim, next year in Jerusalem. 
Because you see, this Passover is not only a commemoration of a redemption in the past, it bears with it all the hope and promise of a redemption that we're still waiting for. And therein lies the burden of my heart and of Jews for Jesus. There's a tradition that maybe Messiah will come at Passover. Elijah the prophet is supposed to be the forerunner and so at the Passover we have Elijah's cup which is filled and nobody drinks from the cup but at a particular time the head of the house tells the youngest child to open the door for Elijah and as the door is opened we sing the oldest Hebrew melody known today. Eliyahu Hanavi, Eliyahu Hatishbi, Eliyahu, Eliyahu, Eliyahu Hagiladi. Elijah the prophet, Elijah the Tishbite, Elijah the Gileadite, come quickly and bring with you Messiah. And every year my people stand and sing, and every year they wonder, is he ever going to come? They don't know of that one named Yochanan. You know him as John the Baptist who, coming in the spirit of Elijah, one day saw a Jewish man coming up over the hill and declared, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Jesus said of him, He's Elijah if you care to receive it. They don't know of Yeshua, Hamashiach, Jesus the Messiah. My hope and prayer is that in our being together today, you might not only be enriched in your understanding of God's Word and of the Passover, but that you might share this burden with us as well. For, you see, we are not like those of my people who do not know and yet wait. But because we do know Him, we can wait with great hope. Because the Bible says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you show forth the Lord's death until he come again. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. O Holy One, Almighty God, Deliverer of Israel, Savior of the world, we thank You that You have redeemed us. You've redeemed us by the blood of the Lamb. And we can say so. Oh, Lord, speak to our hearts again that we might say so with renewed zeal and passion to those around us who have yet to know. We pray for those who may be here even now who have seen this message quick in their hearts to say so, to say yes to Jesus even now, to welcome Him as their Lamb. Lord, we know that we are saved only by Your grace and we thank You for the grace that is poured out, that is so richly portrayed in this Passover and that we now sing and worship you for it's in your name we pray. Amen.